If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Back in the 1950s, Cinderella stories captured the imagination of girls. When meeting the right man seemed like a happy ending, the solution to all of life's problems. But times have changed. In today's podcast, you'll be hearing from historian Carol Diehouse, author of the new book, Love Lives, From Cinderella to Frozen. In this episode, Carol explores how women's lives have transformed since 1950, the year that Walt Disney's Cinderella was released, covering everything from the advent of the pill to the impact of second wave feminism. Putting the questions to Carol was our digital section editor, Rachel Dinning. So we're talking today about how women's lives have been transformed since the 1950s, which is the subject of your new book, Love Lives. Um, You frame your book around the release of two films. So we've got Disney's Cinderella in 1950 and then the release of Frozen in 2013. Um, So what was your reason for looking at this period of time specifically for the book? And why did you choose to bookend it with these two films? Well, I, I chose the time frame um, partly because it, it saw such immense changes in women's position and in patterns of marrying and loving and relating to men. They were so immense. And I didn't know of another text that brought them all together, um, particularly the extraordinary changes in the age of marriage for women after the Second World War, um, which I can talk a bit more about if you're, if you're interested. But 
after the war, women were marrying younger and younger and younger. And many social observers thought that was a trend that was going to go on or stay at least, but continue. I mean, they can't continue forever. But teenage brides were very, very common in the 50s and 60s. And I think contemporaries thought that that was a trend here to stay. And policy decisions were made around that. I mean, the the fact that so many young people were marrying so early was one of the major reasons why the age of majority was reduced from 21 to 18. You know, in the past, you got the key of the door in when you were 21 years of age. But after 1969, um, it came down to 18. And that was very much part of the belief that the early marrying pattern was here to stay. But of course it didn't. It went into reversal. It went into reversal after 1970. And that's fascinating why it did that so dramatically. Um, Most people find it hard not to see it connected with better contraception and the pill. Um, But it's also connected with women's changing ideas about what will bring them happiness in life, when the, you know, whether they invest in their education, whether they look for jobs, what kind of independence they want, um, all sorts of reasons. But it's quite hard towards the end of the 20th century to see what's going on because people stop marrying altogether and quite often chose to cohabit rather than marrying. So you can't do a really simple graph, but insofar as you can, it's still fantastically dramatic. You get this big drop in the age of marriage, followed by a sudden upswing in it, followed by possibly not marrying at all or marrying later and later. And I think that's just fascinating and, you know, raises all sorts of questions about what women want out of life and what what is on offer to them. So the answer to your first question, why choose that period, um, is because it's so dramatic. And there might be a subtext in that it's what I've lived through myself. <laughs> so for me, it's contemporary history, contemporary with my own life, although it's not, not primarily about my own life, the book. <laughs> I think it's interesting because um, it's a book that's framed around women's love lives and obviously marriage and sex and contraception and how um, women see themselves within that. But it's also, it's so strongly about women's identities and how uh, their own personal identities and how that changes. So uh, we start with the Cinderella narrative, um, which is a story that you say resonated really strongly after the second world war and this was the idea that women you know they would have their happy ending when they've got they would come out of poverty perhaps or they would get their their happy ending by marrying a man why was why was that such a popular image and it especially just after the war it's a really good question i should start by saying it's mainly about the book is mainly about heterosexual women's lives you know so you'd get a different perspective if you if you brought in other kinds of um sexualities and identities perhaps but it you know you can't do everything and i chose to focus on the heterosexual thing i think i was stunned by how strong the cinderella myth was i mean when you start looking at it there's the obviously the disney film but even before the disney film there are ballets there are operas there are reissuings of the story in children's book form you know the ladybird books on cinderella the cover of one of which is reproduced in the book um you know the, the one with her in a sort of dior new look dress um with sausage roll curls down the side of her head. Um, It's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And I think that's an interesting question. Why do certain societies 
take up certain fairy tales and retell them in the image of their own times? And why do they have such purchase, such relevance at particular moments? And I think there are lots of reasons. Um, Some of the ones I speculate on are the Second World War was full of, you know, saving and mending and and stinting and economising. You know, there was a lack of luxury. There was a... um, an awful lot of hard work, hard work and making, do and mending and that sort of thing. And it was wearing people down, austerity. And the Cinderella myth kind of appealed, you know, everything breaks out <laughs> in beautiful dresses and flowers. And, you know, you don't have to do the housework anymore. I mean, Cinderella starts off by being a skivvy, but, you know, she's transformed. And in the Disney film, all the little birds do the housework. <laughs> they kind of take it off her. But it represents what, for many women, was a dream, the idea of kind of breaking out of all this greyness and austerity and actually having a life that incorporated, you know, new forms of pleasure and gorgeousness and and luxury. So I think that's one of the reasons. Um, The other reason is it chimes with all sorts of other things. It chimes with the royal wedding in Britain in 1947. It chimes with the coronation um, in 1953. You know, it's... um, for the, for, it becomes ubiquitous. I think if, if you flick through magazines of the period, you find that even women's cosmetics are advertised with reference to Cinderella. I mean, Revlon does a pumpkin-coloured lipstick. Um, you know, Coty does a glass slipper with perfume, with a little perfume bottle tucked in the toe. It's interesting how culturally we take for granted what's around us but when you come out of that culture and look back you see things very sharply and I was stunned by how ubiquitous the Cinderella myth is it even is used to advertise petrol I think one of the illustrations that I use in the book is um, shell petroleum using an image of a pumpkin with (laughs) Cinderella and a couple of footmen going into it so it kind of invades your consciousness in ways that are quite surprising. And Cinderella was just big in the 1950s. <laughs> I wonder if that narrative's still at play even as the years go on, but it's just shaped itself into a different form. So now it's, now it's we can have our happy ending, but we've got to have it all, not just the, the marriage and the happy family, but we've got to have the career and as well, we've got to have all these different elements. What, what do you think? Do you think we still have elements of the Cinderella myth? Well, every time I think it's, it's died off, it comes back in some new form, you know, whether it's the Disney live action one or the new, I think there's a new version in the offing of Cinderella, isn't there, somewhere um, in in London? I don't know. It's been postponed by the pandemic and so on. Um, But it does come back. Every time there's a royal wedding, it comes back or or a big society wedding. I mean, I always look for ways of satirising it. My favourite satirical thing is Adam Ant's um, Prince Charming. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant because he's he becomes Cinderella, you know, in it. And he goes to the ball and hangs from the chandelier and so on with Diana Dawes and ageing Diana Dawes as Prince Char- as uh, the fairy godmother. Wonderful, wonderful. Sort of subverts it just around the 
the time of the Diana Charles wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right, it does keep coming back because it obviously appeals to something deep in human nature. I mean, it would just make life so easy if you could meet one person in your teens, fall desperately in love, and it solves the problem of your life forever and ever and ever. But I don't know how many people you know who that applies to. (laughs) No, it's always funny. But that's that's the end of the film, isn't it? They ride yeah. off into the sunset and... and well, nothing. that's right. Yeah, and that's why the, my first chapter in the book is called When Men Were Unending, because, you know, it's like you find your man and that solves life, uh, in theory. Well, there was one specific bit in your book that I found, well, it's quite morbid, but it was quite funny. And it's this study in the 1950s in which researchers asked, I think it was teenagers, about their hopes and dreams. And these girls say, oh, I I want to find a husband. But then what was really unexpected was that a third of them reported fantasies about the early death of their husband. So they want to find the husband to get the security and the stability and the children. But then they hope that they'll die prematurely and they can then live... um, sort of happily as widows it was yes yes that's the study by um Thelma Vaness and Joyce Joseph it was done at Birkbeck College in the 1950s you're quite right it's a brilliant study and it really shocked the researchers because they were they were well prepared to talk to teenage girls and find they all wanted to get married before they were 21 because that's comes back to the pattern I was describing earlier um but they would completely unprepared for this fantasized death of their husbands and it was almost as if even in their teens the girls knew what they wanted immediately they wanted a man but he was basically to provide a house and children and then they didn't have any more use for him it's like you know praying mantises eating their mates or something black (laughs) widow spiders (laughs) yeah that's better yeah that's a better one but they in order to kind of fantasize about later life they had to get rid of their husbands so they independently were fantasizing about road accidents or heart attacks at work which would take their husbands off and then they would have a house to themselves and the money and they could do what they liked and you know this this was really shocking to the researchers um it's, it's echoed really one of the um archives i used quite a lot in the book is the mass observation archive which aims to or it I won't go into its history now, but it was originally set up in the 30s to look at the lives of ordinary people. And it was resurrected um, later this century, um, later the last century, <laughs> in the 20th century, to again, um, to carry out big surveys of often ordinary, you know, sort of everyday subjects in, in people's everyday lives. And I use at length two studies, um, one of which was called Close Relationships and another which was called Women and Men, um, from the end of last century. And when people were asked to talk at length um, about these these subjects, and it did strike me in that that quite a lot of people said, you know, that they thought widowhood could be a very happy time for women, (laughs) which echoes the earlier study, really. It it was the sort of a fantasized level the idea of getting autonomy back yeah it makes sense because this was a time when you couldn't you couldn't get a mortgage as a woman by yourself so all of these things to create a life were necessitated by marriage so marriage was the first goal um you talk in, in your book about the idea of how love has conquered marriage so like now 
now when we marry, it ten- we tend to be, we're marrying for love. This is a romantic partner that I really care about and want to spend my life together. Whereas in the past, it was more, people would mar- be marrying for, the- for these things. You know, they wanted the security in the house. Um, when, did, when did the shift happen, do you think? When did we start oh, marrying yes. for love? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, the idea of love conquering marriage comes from this. It's the subtitle of a book by an American scholar who's an absolute authority on the history of marriage called Stephanie Kuntz. And um, that is the subtitle of her book. Um, And the the main argument of her book is that romantic love takes over, as you as you just said um, as the main reason for marriage in in the 20th century and effectively it destroys it because it if when marriages were based on kinship and suitability and family allegiance and property they had a more secure base whereas sexual attraction romantic love these are these are dodgy ephemeral things sometimes and not always the best thing to base a marriage on um, as for when it changes in modern history, there's a very good book about this by my, my colleague and friend Claire Langhammer, um, who argues that there was an emotional revolution in Britain before what we often think of as the sexual revolution. And that's when love again comes centre stage. And Claire Langhammer actually argues that that displaced an earlier belief um, that marriage should be pragmatic. You know, you, you base marriage on practical, everyday, sensible reasons. You know, are you are you alike? Do you have shared social economic status? You know, is he going to be a good provider? Is she going to be a good mother and housewife, that kind of thing. I mean, clearly, once you start basing marriages on love, it's dodgy because, um, but people did hope that would happen. That's what the Cinderella myth tells us, that you fall in love at first sight and that is your soulmate. Trouble is, as you know, people started marrying earlier and they started living longer. So that marriage based on love and sexual attraction and fidelity and soulmatery and everything then has to kind of last 50, 60 years, which is a very tall order mm-hmm. for most people. Um, so actually, you know, it's difficult. I think, I mean, there are, there are lots of things that have been happening recently that, that intrigue me. I mean, after completing the book, I was fascinated to read um, a piece in one of the newspapers about a new trend for platonic co-parenting where women who who hadn't found Mr. Right but who wanted to have children had started to advertise on websites to find not a sexual partner but somebody who they could co-parent children with Mm. and you know this is obviously a growing trend and I think it's fascinating I mean you might say it's completely new but in in an odd kind of way it's like a it it echoes what happened in earlier times you know that you had you you parented in in these pragmatic marriages based on sort of you know real everyday things like money property and kinship and then, you know, the, the, the sexual romantic stuff, which is, as I said before, notab- notably unstable, um, was kind of shooed off into the wings, really. But of course, that raises another set of problems, doesn't it? That's really interesting. Um, and you mentioned that just after the war, people were marrying younger than ever um, yeah. and making choice. Did this 
concerned people. You got all these teenagers oh, God, who yes. were like, I yes. want to get, I want to marry Joe oh. down the road. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it caused terrible trouble. I mean, there were, um, for a start off, there was a, a kind of huge rise in the numbers eloping, young teenage couples eloping to Gretna Green, which absolutely fascinates me. I mean, it reached a sort of height in 1966. Um, and you know, I've been through the records in Gretna Green because it does fascinate me. And, you know, there are couples aged 16, 17, and they're running away because their parents don't want them to marry um, for very good reasons. I mean, the, there's quite a lot of evidence that these teenage marriages didn't last. So you can see both sides. But it was getting to be almost a trend and it was romanticised. I mean, it was romanticised in the 50s, James Goldsmith, when he, he ran away age 20 um, with, with um, Isabel Patino, he didn't go to Gretna Green, but he did go to Scotland because Isabel's mother, uh, father, didn't. he was a Bolivian tin magnate, I believe, who, who didn't want James Goldsmith to marry his daughter. She was only 18. And that sort of romanticised it, whereas actually the experience of Gretna Green was often quite squalid because although you could marry in Scotland without parental consent in the 60s, um, below the age of 21, you had to do a residence qualification up there. So, you know, there were kids staying in tents and chicken coops and caravans if they couldn't afford the cheap hotels. And it became quite a scandal. A lot of parents tried to stop their kids running away to marry. And they would do this quite often by making the daughters, particularly wards of court. Um, and But that didn't work either because what then often happened was that the daughter would get pregnant by the guy who was thought to be unsuitable. And then the father would have to go back to the courts and say, for God's sake, don't let my daughter be a ward of court anymore because it was better to have a legitimate grandchild than than to hang out for a more suitable son-in-law, if you see what I mean. That's quite the, funny, isn't it? The fear yeah, it of a, well, not funny, but the fear yeah. of a legi- Ill- an illegitimate mm. grandchild was greater than yes. their initial fear of having yes. an inappropriate partner for their daughter. Absolutely. And the courts were complaining, and it was the fact that the courts were complaining because they couldn't handle all these cases that fed into um, the, the desire to see the age of majority come down for, well, it, it fed initially into the setting up of a parliamentary committee to investigate whether the age of majority should come down from 21 to 18, which was called the Leyte Committee on the Age of Majority. And it was the recommendations of that committee um, that led to the bringing down of the age of majority from 18, um, from 21 to 18. Um, but yes, it was, a re- it was seen as a terrible problem. Um, and you know how, going back to what you just mentioned i mean illegitimacy was a terrible scandal in the 50s as we know and an, you know unmarried mothers had a horrible time how were they treated what would happen well in catholic countries you know because of all the media accounts that have been vocal recently about uh, the terrible treatment of unmarried mothers in Ireland and now the Irish Prime Minister and the Catholic Church forced to apologise publicly for the treatment of these unmarried mothers. It was um, deemed so shameful that a lot of young pregnant women were just shooed off into mother and baby homes um, where the scandal could be, you know, kept some sort of limit could be kept on the scandal. It was seen as sin. It was a source of shame. And it was just terrible. And all of us probably know 
about this in the past. What's so stunning, I think, if you're a historian, is the change that's happened because, you know, whereas illegitimacy was this terrible, terrible source of scandal and shame and sin in the 1950s, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore as a real problem, does it? I mean, you know, half my friends are illegitimate, if you want to call it that. I mean, so many of my friends and um you know, children's friends and so on now don't even bother to get married, that the the idea of the stigma of illegitimacy is something that's receded unimaginably. People in the 50s wouldn't have been able to imagine. And this all in the period that that my book covers, you know, so it goes back to your early question, you know, why did you choose these dates? Well, you know, not least because such massive changes have happened. Um, It's hard to remember how awful it was mm. to be an unmarried mother in the 50s. And of course, people were, it wasn't like people weren't having sex before marriage then. I think I read a statistic in your book that 27% mm. of teenage brides were <laughs> pregnant on their wedding day. They were having sex. I, I think it's really interesting, this, and it's something that the um, Age of Majority Committee did actually go into. I mean, what, was the were young people having more sex than they were in the past? You know, is it because they were maturing earlier? Were they healthier, the post-war generation? You know, was it that they had more opportunities or had things changed so that there was less tolerance of illegitimacy than there had been in the past? And all these are really good questions. Mm. What was the what was it about the, the period after the war that led to the drop in marriages? Because you, oh, you mentioned that, that people were married yeah. more younger than ever. I really, I really think this is a fascinating question, and I'm not sure I can definitively answer it, although I've thought a lot about it. Um, I think, to some extent, it sort of coincides with the teenage revolution, and, you know, young people were sometimes earning more than in the past. There was the rise of sort of cultural expectations, which, you know, I've talked at length about the Cinderella myth, but there also there's the rise of a huge number of magazines for teenage girls, you know, um, with titles like Boyfriend, Mirabelle, Roxy, Valentine. Um, and they all push the romance myth. They push the sort of Cinderella story really hard. There's a very strong implication that if you haven't found Mr. Right by 21, you are on the shelf. I mean, you are a desiccated spinster at 21 (laughs) if you haven't found love. And it's this kind of conflating um, of love and marriage, which probably does the damage. I mean, but given attitudes to illegitimacy, it was hard to see how it could be softened. In the end, of course, it was ripped apart with better contraception and legalised abortion after 1967. But the notion that the only way you could have sex if you it was if you were in love and married, that was the only legitimate way, obviously conduced to the idea that, you know, if you wanted sex, you better get married because mm. otherwise the penalties were so extreme. And that was against a background, as I say, of the teenage, the, well, the early years of the teenage revolution, um, pro- post-war prosperity, such as it was. Um, that kind of thing. I suppose I'm also curious about what did courtship look like at this time? <laughs> what was the sort of stages that you would go through? Girls used to talk about this at school, you know, did you let him get to stage one or stage two or stage three? I forget what these stages were. Obviously, you know, for the the tiny numbers of young people, middle class, well, more middle class people that went away to 
to university there were more opportunities but the university authorities were massively controlling about this uh, they had to be because of scandal I mean if you went to university in the 50s or 60s you almost always had what was called a moral tutor and you know you'd be banged up in halls of residence and made to get back by half past 10 and men would not be allowed in your rooms after half past 10 because the universities legally speaking, were in loco parentis. So if you got pregnant, you know, it was trouble for the university. And, you know, your parents would be angry for the universities being so liberal. So this kind of moral tutor system, this policing of student morals um, caused all sorts of trouble, terrible trouble in the 50s and 60s. And it isn't, of course, until the age of majority is reduced that that goes. And It did go. It went almost overnight after 1969-70 when students were theoretically adults. You know, that whole system of moral surveillance disappeared. That's really interesting. And how would people how would people um, court each other? Would they be going to things like dances? Um, would they be going to Would they go to the cinema just the two of them, or would it be in a sort of friendship group? Well, in, what happened in the interwar period before the Second World War? The two key places for meeting um, partners were, you know, the, the cinemas and the dance halls. After the war, I think the same pattern prevailed for a while. But you get the rise of coffee bars and you know, with jukeboxes and things, you get, and then school dances, you know, dances at university, which were dire. I mean, I remember them, you know, where the men's halls and the women's halls would kind of team up um, and there'd be terrible anxiety about whether you had a partner or, you know, whether you could go, but that kind of thing. Um, I suppose it, it, it loosens up a bit in the 60s, yes, because people have more freedom. And once you, you know, once women had no longer to be chaperoned, and as I say, once this system of kind of controls because educational authorities were in loco parentis goes, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot more freedom around. And you do get part of the problem over the wardship cases and the running away to Gretna Green that I was talking about earlier was that parents lost control of courtship. Um, you know, as young people became much more independent. They could make up their own minds. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Years back, somebody in in a seminar saying, well, why was the age of majority reduced? You know, why did 18-year-olds suddenly become seen as adults? And none of us really knew. And somebody said, well, I guess it's because if if the men are old enough to go to war because of national service at that time they're old enough to vote and we all sort of nodded sagely and thought yeah that's probably (laughs) that's probably why this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Moving on to the advent of the pill, in your, in your view, just how dramatic was the introduction of the pill on the lives of women? How, what did it change? Yeah. Well, this, of course, is hotly contested by, by historians, some of whom say, you know, the pill wasn't the, the kind of massive um, milestone that people have made out. But I think I think it was, you know. <laughs> Even if you didn't take it, the idea that you could have as a woman, sex without consequences was just, without these terrifying consequences of illegitimacy, was just the idea was phenomenally powerful. And you can see that if you go back, um, you know, to the culture of the time. I mean, in the 60s, the problem was getting it in the 60s if you were unmarried. And that's where things like um, university health services and the Brook Advisory Clinics um, stepped in in the 60s to make the pill available for unmarried women. Um, and I think about half a million were ta- uh, women generally were taking it in the, in the 60s, but it gone up to about four million in the 70s. Um, I think the big thing was this belief amongst some people that women could start to have sex on the same terms as men that it could be a form of enjoyment and pleasure Mm. rather than this terrible moral responsibility I mean you can see that one of my favorite films of the period I should be careful saying that because when I as a historian talk about favorite films then it's quite often not because they're good films they're often rubbish films (laughs) but they tell you tell you something yeah, they tell you a lot about the culture at the time. And the one that intrigues me is called Prudence and the Pill from 1968. And I use the, um, the, the advertising poster for that film as, as one of the illustrations in the book. Um, it's very, very, it's amazing. It's very dated. It's about a stockbroker and his wife. And they're very middle class. They have like a chauffeur and a, <laughs> they have servants and things. Um, but the pill, it, it all... The film, which is bonkers, really, revolves around the idea that everybody is so entranced by the idea of the pill that people swap aspirins for pills, they swap vitamin pills for contraceptive pills, and, you know, everybody gets pregnant because everybody swapped their pills around, thinking that they can have sex and get away with it and so on. It's kind of a crazy film. But the punchline in the film at one point is that, you know, Gerald the stockbroker or somebody says something like, um, you know, nowhere in the history of man have you been able to have sex without consequences. And of course, what the pill did was it provided that 
possibility. It provided the possibility that you could have sex without consequences. And certainly, you know, that was a huge move. Um, I suppose, was there a, like, I suppose there could have been a sort of psychological shift. I mean, I was reading just this morning, the little bit in your book about these letters that Mary Stopes would um, receive from women who absolutely could not, did not want to get pregnant to the point that it would tear their, like, they they would be, I'm going to die if I get pregnant it's just that much of a torment and just the relief of not having that that worry or having the option to not have that as a worry must have shifted how people viewed sex I think it massively 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 changes people's attitudes to sex um it's not only the idea of you know it can be safe it can be fun but you get a slew of books I mean the two that stand out in my mind Helena Helena Wright's um, writings and Alex Comfort's writings, The Joy of Sex, where sex is actually compared with food. It's a pleasure that you can partake of. Instead of it being this heavy moral responsibility, you know, with um, the church saying you shouldn't have it outside marriage and it's sacred and, you know, it's it's about, it's about um, procreation and all that. And it comes with heavy responsibilities for both the women and the men. The women are supposed to control the men, ha-ha, you know, because men aren't supposed to be able to control their urges, you know, the old double standard. Um, so, you know, you had to be a kind of decent, innocent woman in order to kind of make men moral. But that whole thing started to be eroded, really. And people started to think, well, you know, if if sex can, can be without those consequences of, of bringing an unwanted child into the world then you know it can be a pleasure and the only ethics that apply to it would be the ethics of ordinary interpersonal respect and so on you know not this heavy moral thing and so you get this light-hearted tone it probably was taken to extremes I mean the early versions of the joy of sex the comfort book are quite distasteful to present day eyes I mean the you know, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it was well known as the hairy man edition. You know, it had this kind of 60s looking bloke, all hairy. And it's actually very sexist when you read it now. The, it has racist overtones as well. But um, he divides the book into gourmet meals, you know. So what do you have for starters, which is foreplay? And then you go on, and, you know. I mean, it's kind of fairly grim. But what's significant about it is this, this new notion that sex can be about, you know, pleasure and play play I think as well as good food you know that is new Mm. and so people's attitudes do start changing and you know the the two big categories of kind of moral discussion race sex in the 50s were premarital sex is terribly hazardous um, occupation should you go in for it and extramarital sex it's like sex should only happen within marriage so the premarital kind and the extramarital kind were heavily problematic when when the pill was first introduced was it I mean was there still a bit of a taboo about going to get it was it like oh she's gone to get the pill don't you who does she yeah. think she is or mm. was there any of that yeah, sort absolutely. of attitude yes and a lot of a lot of the um autobiographical writing of that period makes that out I mean there's a wonderful book by Janice Galloway um called All Made Up um which I'm you know it's quite it's beautifully written I'm not quite sure how much is fact and fiction but she talks about um being unlucky enough she went 
with a very serious minded intention with her boyfriend to the doctor. And they said, you know, um, dear doctor, you know, we love each other. We're going to get engaged. We want to have sex, but we don't want to be irresponsible. But the doctor was a Catholic and they got this incredible moral lecture instead. So if you were, you know, if you came across a Catholic doctor, you could be in trouble if you, as a young person, you went for the pill. But there were other people that were very, very enlightened. I mean, some of the university health services were very, very enlightened. Um, and, you know, if you went along, I mean, again, some young people would go along and say, look, doctor, you know, we're not irresponsible. We really love each other. We're going to be, we're not promiscuous. Um, but of course, as the Brook Advisory Clinics and other enlightened doctors realised, actually, if you were going to be a bit promiscuous, then you needed the pill even more. Mm. <laughs> so this argument that you were entitled to the pill because you were a young, responsible person didn't really hold water because obviously the pill was a good idea. It's not a good idea to bring unwanted children into this world. Were people concerned that it was going to cause an uptake in promiscuity? I think they, they were. They were. I mean, they were. And what you that, that question... I just realised there was something a bit unanswered in my previous question was that some women were a bit nervous about taking the pill because they didn't want to look like they were yeah. too knowledgeable. Um, and when um, I think it, people like, um, oh, Tony Ryle, who wrote a book called Student Casualties, looking at student sexuality in, um, he was at the Sussex University Health Centre in, in the 60s. Um, and Schofield, to some extent, you know, his study of young people and sex, I mean, what they often found was that women weren't taking advantage of the pill because they didn't want to look knowledgeable. They didn't want to look, if they found new boyfriends, they wanted to look yeah, innocent. Yeah, they, they wanted to be, yeah, innocent and yeah, virginal. And yeah, be like, be like carrying condoms in your handbags. So, you know, your young man might think, ooh, what sort of woman is this? You right. <laughs> On that, that note, that, on that note, what was the, before the pill? Were people using condoms? Was that a common mm. thing? Well, yeah, three things. I mean, condoms were obviously the most available. Um, you could get diaphragms, you know, the, the, the rubber kind that kind of go ping that you had to cover in spermicidal jelly. It's a bit of a palaver, but you could get those if you could find an enlightened enough doctor. Mm -hmm. But again, the woman has to do that in advance, really. But yes, you could you could get diaphragms. And then what, what is um, um, spermicidal pessaries, which are like candle wax that, you you know, you shove up and hopefully they... <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it does the job. <laughs> I mean, you really the pill, you know, changed the efficacy uh, stakes quite quite a lot. So yeah. it, you know, it really was a, a shift. Um, we've talked a bit about morals. So something that I found quite interesting was attitudes to infidelity and how actually um, you make this point that cheating is now considered just as unacceptable for men as it uh, so it's basically like it's leveled out so we, we think cheating is bad for both men and women now but in the past maybe there was a little bit of an attitude that oh boys will be boys maybe turn the blind eye to to male indiscretions was that was that yeah the case yes definitely um because in a society where where women were not expected to enjoy sex very much um, and certainly some did, a lot didn't. I mean, you know, the, the sexual surveys of the 30s, I mean, you mentioned Mary Stokes, but there were, other, there were other surveys too, quite often came across women who just chose, you know, they thought their husbands were good if they didn't bother them anymore. Um, 
they actually or they'd feign sleep before their husbands got back from the pub or something like that. So in a culture where women are not expected to experience a lot of sexual pleasure, um, male infidelity could, you know, it kind of got him out of your way to some extent, although I'm sure it wasn't quite that simple. But yeah, there was a double standard. And also, of course, you know, the idea was that um, if you can't have a proper contraceptive system, then adultery could bring more or infidelity could bring more problems because the woman might have another man's child in a marriage, you know, whereas the man is going to trouble somebody else's marriage or something I mean, um so yeah there was this double standard and it has been evened out quite a bit but as you say it's now been evened out in that probably attitudes to adultery at that level are less tolerant but this is one of the big problems in our culture today isn't it i mean everybody condemns adultery but everybody does it and you know it's a real fault line in the culture um you know which a lot of the people that i was reading about are trying to draw attention to. Yeah, I think the statistic that, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it, that 50% of married people, both men and women, will will stray from their relationships, according to this one study. Um, and that's, I, I mean, I, I'm curious to know, do you know, are rates of infidelity believed to have increased or, or is it just, do we know if there's been a shift in, in numbers over time? I think that the sexual attitudes surveys show that women's sexual behaviour has increasingly come in, in line with that of men. Right. You know, so, um, so yes, I would, ex- I would think that infidelity probably has increased. It's very hard to know, though, because um, how do you define it if people are no longer necessarily marrying or if some marriages are based on a, a sort of more open model of marriage where... Um, it is accepted that you will in the course of a lifetime fancy somebody else and that, you know, maybe the couple has to just find ways of accommodating that rather than just splitting asunder. I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, I mean, people may not have married till quite late into their teens, um, late into their 20s, particularly if they were middle class, because the the idea was that you'd have to maintain a big household mm. with servants, you know. So, so you didn't marry until you found a man with a competence, as it were, who could manage this whole massive household kind of burden, you know. Um, so you married late, and then, of course, you, you were likely to die earlier, um, particularly if you had lots of children so you didn't have you know marriages didn't have to last forever you had quite a shorter relationship but now we're living too long we're to stay with the so long yeah that the idea of you know the idea of only going to bed with one person through a 60-year life thing is kind of a bit worrying and most people don't don't of course they they don't they you know they they so it's difficult. I, I mean, I think the need, you know, as a society, we need to find more ways of, of kind of dealing with these issues. So I suppose to bring it back back to history, um, maybe the, yeah. the the topic of divorce in general and, and divorce becoming less of a stigma. Um, when did that sort of begin? When when did divorce rates start to rocket and be seen as more acceptable ways of of ending a relationship? They go, they go through little sort of peaks and troughs. It's quite hard um, to do a, a proper timeline because, as I said earlier, since people, a lot of people are choosing to cohabit, not to marry, you can't really look at the breakup rate in a single graph, um, you know, with 
and call it the divorce rate or the breakup mm. rate. Or the, I mean, it's complicated. And I think there's quite a lot of controversy about what's happening in the most recent years. There's some evidence that the numbers of actual divorces are going down, but that might be because the number of marriages is going down. Um, or it might also be that people are now mating up um, later in life again. I mean, the early marriages thing is the thing of the past. And, you know, insofar as people do marry now, they tend to marry later than than they did in the 1950s. So... You know, I don't trends through time. I mean, there was a little kind of certainly after the the Second World War, there were a lot a lot of divorces, um, and then uh, in it sort of fits with the liberalisation, the no the the rise of no fault divorce. You know, um, was a big thing because in the days when you had to, one partner had to be blamed, all sorts of horrible things happened. You know, that's when you had to have detectives shadowing people's adultery in hotels in Brighton and things like that. You know, that kind of thing because one partner had to be found guilty in order to get a divorce. Um, so the rise of no fault divorce is obviously a a, a big milestone um i think it's it's only recently isn't it i'm not quite sure what the law is at the moment but it's only recently that there's been a move towards this idea that you can have divorce by consent by simple consent of both partners without having to wait so so it's really hard to track it through time for those reasons but people are very keen to do so but usually with some sort of moral agenda you know of either lamenting the kind of collapse of the family as you Mm. say or being slightly more optimistic i mean i tend to be slightly more optimistic because i i I don't know i I mean again this is straying from history but i think these new forms of relationship and arrangement you know are all really rather interesting and exciting i suppose it's there's it's not just a shift in in terms of um, marriages but also a shift in like gender roles over this time um what were the biggest um changes in in gender roles at the period you look at Mm. and what caused them Mm. well um the growing acceptability of women's work married women's work to a point where it's actually normative rather than shock horror is obviously one of the most massive changes um you know you no longer have to apologize for being a working mother you almost have to apologize for not being a working mother um well i wouldn't push that too hard actually because i think you know the idea of of choice has has actually been accepted much more um so you know women being able to be educated to new levels i mean that's been a slow process i mean in in the 50s I would say 75% of girls were leaving school at 15. Um, You know, by the end of the century, you've got women outnumbering men in universities. I mean, amazing, amazing shifts. Yeah. Um, You know, you've got Oxford Oxford and Cambridge, such tiny... um, Well, I don't want to go into education at great length, but, you know, so few women went to Oxford and Cambridge. You know, they were kept out of the medical schools, which had quotas and so on. Um, The the whole, the shifts in education have been immense. The shifts in working lives have been immense. And those have have altered roles. Um, And then... It was something. So the old ladybird roles of, you know, mommy stays at home, daddy goes to work, which used to kind of, which the children's reading books were imbued with in the 50s. They're now a joke. Um, (laughs) The idea of men being involved in childcare has changed massively. I mean, certainly in the 50s, I think, you know, you wouldn't, you didn't see men pushing prams. I mean, you don't actually see that many prams now, but that's interesting. I was thinking about that earlier. I mean, you know, the pram has gone these big prams, you know, but you didn't see men 
pushing, you know, with responsibility for small children. Now, you know, nobody looks up if they see a man with a pushchair or a man with a, a... But there has been a shift. I mean, I think a man pushing a pram would have been seen as letting the side down, would have been seen as not a proper man in the Having in those the really fixed fixed ideas of feminine, feminine yeah, roles and masculine Yeah, it would have been seen as just roles. not male. You know, he'd have been mm. seen as, as, you know, just not male, a bit of a wuss. Um, whereas now it, it's almost... I mean, one of the, in, and again, another illustration in the book that, that I've just written is the um, Athena postcard of the, the, the semi-naked man with a holding a baby. Uh, it's called, you know, it was a photograph by Spencer Rowe for Athena Reproductions. And that sold massively. Um, and women start, started to find clearly the idea of men being tender and compassionate with children, hugely sexy and hugely appealing. I mean, so that's a complete reversal as well um, in roles and expectations over the, over the decades since the Second World War. It is it's interesting because I've only really ever thought I've always thought about the fixed these fixed gender roles in terms of the the female perspective. Um, but then in your book, I found it quite interesting reading the words of Philip Larkin, the poet, <laughs> who <laughs> was is quite a character. I didn't really studied his poetry, but I've never looked into his character. He said, "I've actually wrote it down." All right. Um, he he re- resents. Um, the pressure that these gender roles put on men so he said women don't just sit still and back you up they want children they like scenes they want a chance parading all the emotional haberdashery they are stocked with above all they feel like they own you or that you own them that's a thing I hate and it's interesting hearing that perspective Mm. of him feeling so pressured Mm. by the idea that he has to set up house with a woman and provide Mm. for her and she is the mother and he is the provider. Because um, um, I've always thought, oh, there's so many women who are unsatisfied. But actually the family, that family setup was unsatisfying for some men as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's where I, you know, <laughs> I still take faith um, in what I learned, you know, for sec- from second wave feminism, which was the, the absolute, the, fundamental belief that if women had more independent liberated lives it would liberate men too so you know it was quite sad for me at the end of the last century when a lot of young women students and so on started thinking that feminism was anti-men because our earlier agenda was very much that that feminism was going to make things better for women but it was going to take the pressure off men too and make possible Mm. much more equal and mutually respectful relationships and I still believe that. Another thing I found interesting was a study of young wives and mothers in the 1960s. It's Hannah Gavron, I think, um, found that these women were full of regret and believed they'd missed out on something, which I found immensely sad. Um, But was there, I suppose, was there an alternative at the time for for women? Was there, was there a different life they could have taken or, or really was most, were most people just getting married and becoming housewives? A lot of women did manage to negotiate their way around that. Um, But they often had to cope with a lot of conflict and social disapproval, I think. There was very much the idea that if you persisted in wanting to work after having children, you would not be a good mother, for instance. Feminists who were active in the 50s were incensed by this. You know, the idea that if you... 
if you wanted these things, you would be a worse mother. I mean, interestingly, the, the women that stuck it out in the 50s often, I mean, doctors were, were one category because, I mean, to train as a doctor as a woman was a, a very minority thing. I mean, because the medical schools strictly limited the number of women that could go to them before the Sex Discrimination Act of 1975. Um, so the women that made it into medicine, you know, had invested so much energy and psychic energy and psychic struggle and, and money into becoming doctors that they were loath to give it up. So quite often, even if they went down to doing part-time clinic work or something like that, they hung on in there, you know. So not every people did escape from the 50s thing. And then of course there were also the women that had to work. They just had to go out to work. And the, the single mothers and the and the women who were responsible not only for children but from elder for elderly parents. So the ideology, you know, didn't fit everybody. But it's ideologies are crippling nonetheless because they you know around the edges they kind of produce friction and guilt don't they I mean I mm. think you can still say that of the Cinderella myth I mean people still I mean some women still worry about not finding Mr Right or about you know the idea um, you know a, a divorce after say you know 10 years of marriage I mean how do you do you regard it as failure or do you say actually we did 10 years together mate and that was really great you know but let's move on now I mean so that it's always it's difficult I wanted also to ask you on on the topic of feminism what do you think changes in gender roles um and scripts in the in this time period were were a result of feminism or is it is it was it other f- factors it, often oh. it gets put down <laughs> think, to feminists i think feminism i think feminism's been really second wave feminism particularly particularly the way it fought for education um, and so on was was massively important i don't i mean it, it's interactional so i don't know how you separate it out but you know feminists fought very very hard against sex discrimination in education for instance i mean uh, looking back i remember mrs thatcher uh, started off by being minister for education and she said, you know, there's no sex discrimination in education. And every book, you know, feminists just howled at that because at the time, the medical schools, as I said earlier, had quotas. Oxford and Cambridge had limits on the number of women that could go to them. You know, I mean, you, you just, there were, and that's even before you start on the informal curriculum and compulsory domestic science at school for girls. And, oh, God, you know, there was just tons of it. Um, and gradually that's kind of eroded. Um I think you know fem- second wave feminism did have huge successes but they it interacted with other things like it interacted with the contraception I mean the fight for abortion rights for instance or the fight for more freely available contraception interacted with the technological availability of those things and so on and post-war wealth and need for work in the economy things like that so it's really hard to separate it out but nobody really has done a full study of the impact of second wave feminism I I would quite like to see it done by somebody else Um, I suppose as we're getting to the end of the podcast I wanted to ask um, so so the social historian Stephanie Kuntz I think her name yeah. Um, has suggested that upheavals in family life over the past half century or so have transformed how people conduct their li- their personal lives as thoroughly as the industrial revolution mm-hmm. transformed w- lives 200 years ago um, what do you think about that it's quite a big question but do you think that that is that's in any way accurate has it been that dramatic i mean i want to jump in and say yes um 
a bit against my nature, you know, to kind of consider very carefully before committing yourself. I want to say yes, because I've just written this book when I've been forced to confront these massive changes. So they're at the forefront of my mind. But I'm not, I'm not a historian of earlier periods. So, I mean, you know, it is quite astonishing when you think that the rest of the time in history, although people had various ways of trying to control childbirth, uh, either limit or or produce births. I mean, because quite often women couldn't have children and they were perplexed by that. But you didn't. The pill is quite extraordinary in the way it does give you a control over your own body. So that's I think. Yes, I do. I do think things have changed radically mm. and, and re- it. I think you can talk about a revolution in 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 these areas in in the twentieth century. I really do, um, but it would be for historians of earlier periods to kind of mount the case for a revolution in their own in their own periods. Yeah, that's <laughs> very fair. Test, you know. Um, and then I suppose just sort of one of my final questions would be: Did you discover anything whilst researching your book that you didn't know or really surprised you? Um, well, I, I think I, I remain fascinated by the um, the Lady Committee on the Age of Majority. I really do. I remember once years back, somebody in, in a seminar saying, well, why was the age of majority reduced? You know, why did 18-year-olds suddenly become seen as adults? And n- none of us really knew. And somebody said, well, I guess it's because if, if the men are old enough to go to war because of national service at that time they're old enough to vote and we all sort of nodded sagely and thought yeah that's probably (laughs) that's probably why but actually when you read the report and you read the minutes of evidence that you are allowed to read which is most of it um you know it's not at all it's about women it's about women and and all that and so it always intrigues me when you 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 dig down below things that you thought you might know about and find something completely different <laughs> so i'm interested in all that and i was i didn't know about the gretna green stuff and so on and i found that mm-hmm. very very fascinating and and went up to edinburgh um last year when we could move around <laughs> oh those were the days days <laughs> to, to go through the record and there's still lots I'd like to find out about that. So, yeah, I can't think of, you know, one one immediate thing. Um, but but maybe, yeah, that, that area really interested me. That was Carol Diehouse. Her book, Love Lives, From Cinderella to Frozen, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Anna Malika Tubbs will be speaking about her book, Three Mothers. Three Mothers.